like Russ said, I get to talk to you guys about obedience and honor. Um, starts with, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And if you are a parent right now, I bet your hope is that we are talking about this up in kids' community right now as we speak. Um, this section is a portion of scripture that a lot of times as adults we can look at and kind of disregard because we think, oh, it says children, I can kind of, it doesn't really have anything to do with me. But I would, I would argue that there is something for all of us in this section of scripture. And for right now, we're going to talk about children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. So in the Greek, I want you to know that children in this part actually is referring to kids and young adults. Because in the Jewish culture, uh, the age of 13 was kind of the point of moral maturation. Um, and then at age 20, you were considered to be an adult. You would have a livelihood. You would be able to contribute to the family. So for the sake of this talk, and because it's Mother's Day, if you're 20 or under, obey your parents. Okay? Um, and I was trying to think of a really... Yes. Yeah, I feel like there should have been a few more amens, Jeff. Um, I was trying to think of an example from when I was a kid of, some, of an illustration of a time that I was drastically disobedient. And as I was thinking about it, I came to the realization that I was probably not the coolest kid on the block. Um, I, <laughs> parents have rules. I usually followed them. They were really great parents. They set good boundaries on them. And one of our rules was that you don't go to somebody's house without their parents' home, especially a family that you don't know or that, like, that our parents don't know. And I followed this, and this was good, until... 1990, because in 1987, the hit movie, Three Men and a Baby, came out. Do you guys remember that movie? Well, in 1990, the big scandal happened, right? Who knows what I'm talking about right now? Anyone? Yes. Thank you. The scandal was that the movie production company bought a house from this family. And the story is that the family, this part is sad, the family had a boy who had years ago in that house. Um, and during the movie, they say that the boy, the ghost boy, appears at, in one of the scenes of the movie, right? So if we could pull that up, right? You guys remember that? Go Google three men and a baby. You can find anything you want to do. The first thing that comes up is ghost boy. Um, so this was huge, right? Everybody was talking about this at school, all this stuff. And I thought, man, I, I need to see this ghost boy. Just turns out that Ryan invites my friend Pam and I over. But I know his parents aren't home, and I know I can't be there. So <clears throat> Pam and I tell my parents that we are going to ride our bikes to the school and do homework, as every good kid does. So they let us do that. But instead, we ride past the school, and we go to Ryan's house. We watch it. We see the ghost. We all saw it. Um, super intense. Super glad I did it. And then we come back. They have no idea. Well, for the next week, guilt was just, like, eating at me. <laughs> and I just felt so guilty, and at that point I should have realized maybe that I had some issue with anxiety, but they, they were, I, one night I remember I went into my mom and dad's room and I was just crying, I was like, mom, dad, I lied to you, They're like, oh, okay, well, what about, I told you I was going to the school, but Pam and I went to Ryan Bounty's house instead, and his parents weren't home, and like, oh, they maybe looked disappointed, and also might have tried to not laugh a little bit as I look back at it. <laughs> And they're like, well, what should we do? And I was like, well, I should probably be grounded for a week. And they said, okay, okay. <laughs> so at that point, I lied, told on myself, and then grounded myself. And I think my parents had it pretty easy. But I realized I was not the coolest kid. The point of all of that is, 
is that I knew what was right and wrong, even at 10. We know what it means to obey. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time talking about obedience. Obedience is do what you're told, right? Um, if I were to ask any parent in here, it would probably look, if I asked you what it means to obey, it would look a lot of different ways depending on what age of kids you have. But just for a couple quick examples, it means that when your mom and dad say don't touch that, don't touch it. If they say come to the dinner table, you come to the dinner table on the first time, not the second, third, or fourth time. Um, when they say don't go to somebody's house when their parents aren't home, you don't go. When they say don't drive your friends around, you don't drive them. When they say clean your room, just please clean your room. Um, because it says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Because your parents are doing their very best to love you and take care of you. And they may not be perfect. They're going to make mistakes. But they are doing their best to care for you and in the best way that they know how. So obey your parents. Okay? Um, but as most of our kids, and I know I was talking to young adults as well, as most of our kids are in kids' community right now, the part of the scripture that intrigues me the most is the portion on honor. Um, this is one of those verses that in some ways seems like it might just be a simple reminder that Paul was sharing. And for them back then, probably, he probably was using it as a simple reminder and not some big radical new idea and new thought. But today, I, um, part of me wonders if this passage is actually a completely radical thought for us, the idea of honoring our mother and father and honoring others. Because we have lost the deep importance of family and community as a society today. We think that the individual has become more important than the whole, or the family, or the community. To the people of Ephesus and the Jewish culture in general, family was the bedrock of their society. Everything was built on family. The family was a central part of what shaped the perspectives on the world. How to deal with people, how to respect people, how to honor people. They learned how to spend their money through the family, how to treat others of the opposite sex, how to work, what to do for work. The family was the bedrock of the society and of their faith. When you got married, you didn't move out. You actually moved in with your in-laws. Picture that. You, instead of building a house far away, you are building onto your in-laws' home. Families lived together and took care of one another. In other words, you didn't have a honeymoon. You had more of an extended family vacation. Um, and not only that, but they made decisions based on what was best for the family, not best for the individual. So when it came time to decide what job you would do, it wasn't, man, what do I want to do? It was, what do you want me to do? What is going to be best to serve this family? Today, on the other hand, we get married, we move out. Whether we get married or not, actually, you move out. Um, our parents get older, we put them in homes and have other people take care of them. And I'm not saying go live in your parents' basement forever. That is not the message here. Um, <laughs> But what I am saying is that most of our decisions today are based on what I want to do and what is best for me, what will make me happy. And if you think about it, when you hear about people making big decisions in their life, what do you hear people say most often? Whatever makes you happy, do that. What job do I want? What college do I go to regardless of, of cost or location? What team should we put our kid on regardless, to make sure that they're the very best player they could be regardless of what it does to the family schedule or finances? What church or small group best fulfills my needs, not what gifts can I bring to the larger community? Um, we now often put the individual needs of someone over the family's or the community's needs. In other words, we honor ourselves versus honoring others. And yet Paul is reminding the community to honor your mother and father. And this is the part that I believe speaks to our entire community because we have an obligation and a duty to honor our parents. And even more than that, 
we need to remember that Paul is still talking under the umbrella of mutual submission and to a society that is centered around family. And family is where you learn how to treat others. Therefore, the idea of honoring your mother and father should also carry over into how we treat and approach all of our relationships. Honoring others is something we do for the course of our life. So for a minute, we're just gonna talk about what honor is. So I turn to our handy dictionary.com, and if you could pull that up, this is a really beautiful honor. This is their definition, to hold an honor or high respect, to revere. And I love it when they use the word that you're trying to define in the definition, because that really is helpful. So then I looked up revere, and it's to regard with respect, tinged with awe. So this idea of just having awe towards somebody or respect or revering them. But I went to somebody else to ask them what their definition of honor was or what it, they think it means to honor someone. So the wise, if you guys don't know her, you should get to know her, but the wise Michelle Estelle says it this way. To honor someone is the, the, the desire to seek the wisdom of an elder based on the elder's experience and mature perspective, not basing it on the success or performance of that person, but on life experience. And I love the idea of the desire to seek wisdom of an elder. And it's not this idea of, man, if this person's done it all right, they deserve honor then. It's, no, they've lived life, let's honor them and let's desire to see their wisdom. It's similar to obedience. Honor comes from a posture of humility. It's to give others value and respect, to regard them highly, esteeming them of worth. And there's many ways to do this, we know that. Um, but here are some ways to honor. And for the sake of application and for example, I'm gonna be using examples of honoring your parents, but these are ways to show honor in all of our relationships. One, the first is to accept them. Act favorably towards them. In no way diminish the esteem due to them by others. This means that when you get in the car after a long family dinner or after a, a group event, you don't immediately get in the car and start talking about all the things that were obnoxious and annoying and all the inconveniences of that time, especially in front of your kids. Um, or when you're meeting with somebody and somebody texts you, like a mom or dad or something, and it's maybe the fifth text or something, you don't sigh and grumble under your breath. It's, oh, my mom loves me, my dad loves me, they're texting me. Um, you, hum you humbly accept them, don't tear them down to other people. And you don't have to agree on everything with them to honor them. Uh, you can actually honor them in disagreement. You can say, we don't have the same position on this, but I'm truly gonna listen and hear what you have to say and learn from your story. And actually this, played out just a little bit ago with my parents, who I love and they're really great. Um, but we were, ha my husband Brad and I were, we went to dinner with them a little while ago and we were talking about a subject that maybe we didn't see eye to eye on. And it was a long, intense conversation. It was probably two hours. I think it was on my dad's birthday, which was super great for him, I'm sure. Um, but I left and it was this beautiful conversation of us honoring one another because we truly sat and we listened to them and we asked them questions about why they thought what they thought and they did the same for us and they, and it was not this big fight and argument, but man, I don't, I don't understand why you think that. Why? Tell me more. And so then we would learn, and then they would ask us, tell us more. And then we would tell them. And so it was this really beautiful idea of honoring. And I felt very fortunate that I had parents like that who would sit and listen to us and that I could listen to as well. So this idea of accepting, um, accepting them for who they are and not comparing them to others. So the second way, so that's, um, that's accept. The second way is to appreciate them. As difficult as that may be for some, it means finding the best in them, looking for things about them that you admire, or at least that you tolerate. Um, understand that they are humans too. They make mistakes and they have faults. 
I know this because I'm a parent and I make a lot of mistakes and I have a lot of faults, but they have good qualities too. Look at those and focus on those. Talk about those. Appreciate those. And again, appreciate them for who they are. Like I just said, don't compare them to other people. Don't look at other parents and say, I wish you were that way or I wish you were that way. Appreciate them for who they are as a person, who God made them to be. And appreciate them by listening to them. Listen to what they have to say. Ask them their story. Everyone has a story. They're speaking from a lifetime of experience. Appreciate the wisdom that comes with age that you cannot get from any other way than by simply listening to it, living life. Um, and the third way that I would like to talk about is to affirm them. And this is kind of more of like an actual action step. But praise them. Speak words of encouragement toward them. Perform positive acts that bring them joy, improve their lives, and give them value. Tell them why you love them and appreciate them. Tell them the good qualities you see in them and the ways in which you hope someday that you are similar. And this is more than just a Mother's Day card, although do that today for sure. This, but this is more than just a Mother's Day card or a phone call on the birthday and then playing nice at family dinner. But give them your time. Go out of your way to value them, to show them value. Let them know and show them. Ask for advice. Desire wisdom from them. Make decisions within a community. And for some of us, all of these things that I just said come really easily. Maybe you have parents like mine who are really, they really are wonderful, and that is great, and you're fortunate. But I also am very aware that there's people sitting in here that, who that is not the story for, and I know that's harder and a lot more difficult, and I'm not going to pretend to have an easy answer, um, especially when you have parents who maybe have abandoned you, or parents who have made choices that left you with deep pain, or parents who manipulate and hurt you. And like I said, I don't have an easy answer, but I, I do think it is still possible to honor them. Um, I do think it, you honor them um, in these type of situations. It needs to be with healthy, emotional, and protective boundaries. But I do think it's possible. And this is not something that's easy and should be done with, on a whim, but something that should be thought out and talked about with help. And we would love to talk about that with you if that is your case. Any of us on staff or our elders would love to dive into that more deeply with you. But no matter your situation, I want us to remember that although we've talked mostly about honoring our parents today, um, <clears throat> this, again, is a way for us to live our lives in all of our relationships, treating relationships with honor. So today, right now, I want you to think about somebody who you need to honor. And now as you have that person in your mind, it's probably the easy person that came to mind first, right? So I want you to honor them today. Do something, go out of your way. But then I think we need to start using this as a practice, something daily in our lives, and help it become part of a rhythm. Now I want you to think of about three other people, and maybe that person who you, in the back of your head right now, you're like, I probably should honor this person, but I don't really want to. And I want to challenge you this week to do that as well. Um, maybe it's your mom and dad, maybe it's a friend or coworker, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's somebody else who just needs it, and maybe it's somebody in this room or in this community or another mom that, you, that inspires you. Um, tell them, show them, bring them something, verbalize it. Acknowledge their gifts, accept, appreciate, and affirm them. We want to focus on this idea of what does it really mean for parents to submit to their children. That seems odd. It seems like something that uh, would be opposite of what we would imagine. Uh, but Paul's command and teaching is to mutually submit to one another. Uh, so we want to talk for a few moments about parents. I came across this quote from John Wilmot, the former Earl of Rochester, that said this, Before I was married, I had three theories about raising children. 
now I have three children and no theories. I think that is an appropriate statement. Uh, for many of us, we understand the weight and the sacred responsibility of parenting. There is a, a significant importance to that particular role. And, uh, and I would probably echo what John says. This morning, the attempt really is to look at what does parenting look like in this particular idea of submitting to one another. I'm going to focus most of my attention on the idea of application. I think so often we try to fill our heads with more information and knowledge uh, that we sometimes don't allow that to hit the ground. And so I want to spend most of our time looking at what does it really mean to flesh out these ideas and to be really applicable with these concepts. Our passage for the morning, uh, for this particular section, is this. Fathers and mothers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers and mothers. Now, I'll say that because this. While it is fathers who are addressed here, most commentators acknowledge that it is fair to see these instructions as being written to both parents. Greek society was patriarchal, so Paul addressed the mothers through the fathers. And we are on good ground allowing the verse to speak equally to both parents. So, as we consider this idea of provoking mothers, you're not off the hook. All right? Provoking one another or provoking our children. Uh, What's interesting to me is that uh, Paul... Um, what he tends to do is focus on parenting, and he only does it in a couple places. There's not much in the New Testament that truly speaks to this idea of parenting. Uh, but in two of the occasions in which he does speak about it, this same idea of provoking comes up. So you see it in our passage today, Ephesians, don't provoke your children into anger. But you also see it in Colossians. In Colossians, it says uh, along the lines of fathers and mothers, don't provoke your children Uh, lest they become discouraged. So Paul, in all of his instruction on parenting, which isn't much, he tends to double down on this idea of provoking. So there has to be something significant to what provoking truly is. Uh, For a lack of uh, definition, instead of giving you the Wikipedia definition, I think the best way to to define uh, provoking is really to consider an illustration. And the one that most uh, resonates with me is this idea of a fire. If you've ever been around a fire pit and you've got little smoking embers in there, to exasperate or to provoke would be to either fan that fire so that the flame becomes hotter or, in some cases, to throw additional like uh, sticks, logs, whatever on it to grow the flame. Or in some of our cases, provoking our children is just like busting out the lighter fluid and squirting it on. And all of those illustrate the same idea, that you are like creating the flame, that you're taking what's there and you're provoking it, you're, you're continuing to like uh, to ramp up the energy in it, uh, you're riling, you're creating unrest. All of that is behind this idea or image of provoking. It's stirring up in your children uh, things that are not ideal. So the question then becomes, I think, what does it really mean or how do we exasperate our children? How do we do that and what does it look like? And 
Uh, what I want to do is give us a, a few illustrations of what this might look like beyond what you would consider the obvious ones. Obviously, showing favoritism is going to exasperate children. Obviously, verbal and emotional abuse will exasperate children. Uh, there's a, a list of things. Uh, just being inconsistent with your discipline would be another. I want to go beyond those a little bit and talk about some other ways that I think uh, we see this concept uh, fleshed out. But before any of you in here think to yourself, well, I, I can just kind of put it on cruise control for the next few moments because I don't have any children, so I could be, it's impossible for me to be guilty of exasperating them. Uh, I would, I would uh, argue that uh, you can exasperate really in any relationship, that you can cause dissension, you can rile up, you can create ill will in any relationship. And so what we're going to be talking about in these illustrations I think are applicable to all of us. So let me just give you a few. Number one, a well-meaning overprotection. Well-meaning overprotection can absolutely exasperate, like it just frustrate and discourage our children. What I mean by that is not giving children the space and the freedom to, to make decisions. We smother them. We say, uh, these are the things you can't do, and we create a huge list, uh, and these are the things that you must do, and we create an even bigger list. And uh, so we, we overprotect them. We find ways to uh, negate uh, what they are responsible for in some ways. And and I think what it ends up doing is it doesn't give them permission to fail. That in failure, there's great learning. And so it's creating space that's appropriate for their age and appropriate for their maturity to live into it and learn. So one way is we overprotect. The second is we use love as a reward or a punishment. What I mean by that is we simply give or extend more love when they tend to be doing things well, or we withdraw or hold back love when they tend to be doing things that aren't necessarily our desire. And it's very quickly that a child can recognize those moments when love is being withheld and how often it is connected to their behavior. And so one way that we can exasperate our children is this. A third is uh, we overemphasize achievement. What I mean by overemphasizing achievement is that we put such pressure, such mounting pressure on their ability to perform, to achieve, to accomplish, uh, that it, it goes the beyond, beyond the bounds of like the normal expectation that they begin to feel a great weight or a great pressure uh, and oftentimes come to the conclusion that it's impossible for them to ever please their parents. They may, maybe never can quite reach the level that was desired, and so we can overemphasize achievement to the point where they begin to feel burdened and weighted down. Uh, another is that we're emotionally absent, emotionally absent, which basically the idea behind that is we want to keep uh, our life free from intrusion. We don't mean to say it that way, but uh, we are essentially saying that we can become inconvenienced at times by our children. Uh, so we always find ourselves busy doing something. We're always uh, fixing something. We're always on a task. Maybe we're doing work at home. Maybe we have to make an extra call. Maybe uh, there was something we wanted to do in our garage, something we wanted to get done. And so all of that inadvertently leads to this space where it's like, hey, not now. I've got this going on. Oh, don't, no, not, not right now. I'm busy. Oh, maybe a little bit later. And so what happens is we're physically present but we're emotionally absent at the very same time. And so we can at times exas 
like just, just frustrate our kids when we are emotionally absent. Another one would be to publicly humiliate or criticize our kids. That means to, um, out of frustration or anger, to cut them down when they're in front of their friends or in front of family. Uh, I remember growing up, my mom was always really good about this. There would be a moment where uh, I probably needed to be in some ways humiliated in front of my friends or needed to be told right in that moment, like, what you're doing, not okay. Uh, but she would always say something like this, uh, Russ, we'll, we'll talk about this later. And that was like the death statement right there. That was like, like it was seared into my mind that later on in the day we would have that conversation that I would not be looking forward to, right? But what she did in that moment was she did me the kind service of not humiliating me, not frustrating me in front of friends and family. She instead decided to pull me aside and have that conversation at another time. And it was guaranteed I'd remember that conversation. It's guaranteed we'd revisit it, right? Uh, but there was something kind and gentle about not doing that and not frustrating our kids in front of others. Another uh, example of what this might look like is uh, more withdrawals than deposits. And what I mean by that is if an encouragement is a deposit, criticism is a withdrawal. And, and sometimes we can over-major on the criticisms. We talk about the flaws, the things that need to be fixed, the things that didn't go well rather than being the kinds of people that are constantly making deposits in our children or in our friends, to consistently be someone who's uh, not selfish with our compliments, to be willing to say, like, I love you deeply, and I'm so proud of you. That the, the generosity you just showed to someone else is very meaningful. Or a way to care for your brother or sister, or just... To, to just continue to, to share with them the, the beautiful things you see about them in their life and to let them know that those things are, are very, very significant to you uh, rather than just harping on those things that maybe don't quite go the way we imagined. Let me give you um, a couple more. One would be this. We hold them to a higher standard than we hold ourselves. There's a tendency maybe to hold them I'll give, you, I'll give you a hypothetical. Let's just say, hypothetically, I mean, this would never have happened in our home. But let's just say that uh, you've said uh, nobody has phones or any devices at the table when we're at dinner. And you just, you know, don't turn them on, don't check them, eat dinner, be a family. Let's have that be kind of the standard. And let's just say, hypothetically, you left your phone in your pocket when you came to dinner, and then, you know, you received the text, you checked said text at the dinner table, responded quickly, put it back, looked back up, and realized everyone was looking at you going, what are you doing? Now, hypothetically, in that moment, you have a couple options. One would be to say, uh, that applies to you, but it doesn't necessarily apply to whoever the parent would be in this illustration, if you understand what I mean. Um, because it's an important work thing, or it's, uh, I really had to get back to that person, and I was awaiting this text, and it finally came in. And uh, your kids may tell you, well, that doesn't matter, because we kind of have an unwritten rule or a code that we desire to live by. I give that as an illustration, because I think it's true that we can often hold our kids to a higher standard than we actually live out ourselves. 
We criticize them for maybe speaking about someone else, and yet we find ourselves in the front of the car talking about somebody else, and they're in the back listening. I mean, we could list story after story or illustration after illustration highlighting ways in which we perhaps hold them to a higher standard than we hold ourselves, which leads to the last one I feel like we should bring up, and that is this, that we never say we're sorry. Another way to just frustrate our children or to provoke them to anger is to to actually never apologize. To be in a place where you lose your cool, it's going to happen. To be in a place where maybe you say something you regret. Um, to, To act in a way that you know is inconsistent with what you've asked of them. Uh, Maybe you uh, fail to listen when you should have. Uh, Maybe you even discipline the wrong child. I know that that probably would never happen to any of you, but there are times when two people are arguing and you thought that it was the one person's fault, come to find out it's the other. In all of those moments, uh, I think what we should have the opportunity to do is to walk back into the room and just simply apologize. To say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Either the way I handled that or what I said or what was done or the way I responded to you was inappropriate and I am sorry. Will you forgive me? It is a, a wonderful way of not only submitting or, or showing uh, the importance of that, but I think it's also a beautiful way uh, of living into the gospel, Right? Um, We have this false illusion that perfect parents somehow best demonstrate what it means to know and love and follow Jesus. I would argue that it's parents who are willing to say, I need the gospel in my life as much as you need the gospel in yours that are the ones that are most transformative. The ones who can honestly say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And recognize that then in that moment, what God is providing through Jesus for me is the same thing he provides for you in those moments when you don't quite hit the mark. And so being able to live into that and to to really uh, honor our kids in that way, I think is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And again, these hold true whether you're a friend or whether you're a parent. So the text says to us this, uh, don't provoke your kids unto anger, but instead Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, all right? So bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Some versions say training and admonition. The big idea is, uh, in the first section, is discipline is really the word for training. And instruction is really, literally means to put sense into the mind. So it's like to take common sense and shove it into their brains. It's really this idea Uh, of what instruction means, right? So what the scriptures are saying here is to to train them or to bring sense into their mind, to help them to understand something. Uh, It's very similar to the teaching we have in Proverbs, which is train your child in the way they should go, and when they're older, they will not depart from it. You've probably heard that before, Proverbs 22.6. Now, the interesting thing about train in the Hebrew is really that it has four big ideas to it. Four things that you can kind of uh, help to understand what the word is communicating based on its usage in the Old Testament. And uh, here's a few of them. It means to dedicate or to inaugurate something. It means to throttle, to make narrow, or to discipline. 
And a third use is the idea of instruction, to maybe introduce someone to something or someone. Now, each of these ideas in and of themselves are important, and each of them collectively, when you put them together, I think they uh, speak to some very significant ideas. But I would also argue that maybe this understanding of what it means to teach or to train or instruct has led many of us to conclude, or has led the church at large at times, to conclude that uh, actually parenting is a bit like a formula. That if you follow a consistent formula, you're going to get a consistent result at the end. Right? Or maybe another way of describing it is uh, uh, if you follow the recipe. If you have like uh, two parts discipline and three parts humor and uh, one part or a little splash of TV, but not too much TV because it will really turn things a bit sour. Um, but you want them to have some of these, th- but you got to keep them away from these. So it's all about like ingredients. What are you putting in? And if you put it right in and you bake it at just the right temperature, out pops these cookies that taste amazing, or in this case, these kids that are incredible. Like world changer, unbelievable, right? Others of you, if you're not relating to the cooking illustration, it's a bit like putting together Ikea furniture, okay? And what I mean by that is, like, you get all these parts, and you're like, man, and it's kind of like parenting, right? You, you sit down, you open the box, the whole thing's there, you get the kid, and you're like, why is there no instruction manual with this, right? And everybody's kind of freaking out for the first week or two, and you're like, I don't know what to do. And then you go, oh, here's the instructions. If we, everybody's been telling us if we follow these parts, they even provide the little tool in the Ikea box, and then you start putting the thing together. If you get it wrong a little bit, it's okay because you just backtrack on the ingredients or the, the demonstration, and then you, like, re-put it together, and it all, it's perfect. It's perfect. How could it go wrong, right? And so I think these ways of thinking about it often lead us to those kinds of conclusions, which we would also probably acknowledge as maybe the not the best thinking related to the idea of parenting. But there is this fourth way of understanding this concept of training and instruction that I think is really significant. And it means to create an appetite. It means to create an appetite. And so what would happen, the word literally meant this. It meant palate or roof of the mouth. And the idea was that midwives back in the day would take a little bit of olive oil or they would take some oil from crushed dates and they would just put it on their thumb, and then up on the palate of the little newborn baby to create a desire, to create an appetite, to get them to taste it and then want to eat. And so the idea is, man, what does it look like to create an appetite? What does it look like to instill in our kids, not a formula, not Uh, a number of uh, verses that need to be memorized or a number of Bible classes to attend or a number of church services to go to or should they sign up for a one or not. But the big idea rather is what am I doing to create an appetite for knowing and loving and following Jesus? What am I doing to instill in my kids these values and these desires that can be nurtured right? Um, when, I, when I think of this concept, uh, I can't help but think of Mr. Miyagi, okay? Many of you are familiar with uh, Mr. Miyagi as the, the I, I would say in many ways, Mr. Miyagi is like the ultimate, penultimate discipler, okay? 
the uh, person that uh, demonstrated the greatest means of inspiring his student to learn. So think about it in the area of parenting. The big idea is to so live into creating an appetite in your kids that they begin to embody or practice or live the way of Jesus naturally. They don't have to refer to the manual. They don't have to have certain things downloaded, but they pick up naturally the ways in which we're modeling things, the things that we're instructing them in, the ways in which we um, come alongside. We could even like think about those ideas or those illustrations of painting, right? So he's painting, and then he's waxing on and waxing off, right? And all of those things, what? He had no idea what he was doing. He had no idea why he was doing it. In fact, he became frustrated a little bit by the very actions he was embodying because he didn't understand the purpose or the meaning behind them. But over time, what began to happen is he realized the very things he was practicing were all connected to something much larger, something much more significant. And he began to embody in his own life the ways in which his parents, his masters, teachers, trainer was instructing him. I bring this up because I think it connects us to a passage in the Old Testament that I consider one of the most significant teachings on this idea of what it means to model life as a parent. In Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So first, you have to own it yourself. You have to love the Lord. You have to live and follow Him. But then it says this, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The big idea is this. And in instilling appetites in your children and in walking alongside of your friends or your family, that the opportunity we have is not to just give instruction, give a manual, give details, but to actually create appetites, to create longings and desires, to take every moment of every day as an opportunity to instruct. So rather than just sitting down and doing it at bedtime or rather than sitting down and praying before a meal. All of those are good things and should be lived out. Rather than just instructing in certain moments, you take opportunities when you're driving down the street and you see something happen to say, let's, let's pray in this moment for that person. Or to be talking about a significant subject like death and begin to talk to your kids about what does it mean to truly live? And how do we take advantage of the moments we've been given? To find ways to whet our kids' appetite of what it means to be people who are hospitable or generous. To model these things in such a way that every moment of every day becomes like a Mr. Miyagi moment, right? A chance to just instill a beautiful way of following Jesus. And I think that's should be our focus and our desire. The way in which we can demonstrate mutual submission to our kids is to simply walk alongside. 
to whet their appetite, to create this energy for what it means to follow Jesus.